0: True crime. Sex.
1: Political conspiracy.
0: Celebrity gossip.
1: Murder. UFOs.
0: Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal Sheets. Hello everyone. And welcome to Scandal Sheet. Your source for exhaustive investigations into all manner of deviant, socially undesirable, or criminal behavior by famous people or organizations, both past and present. My name is Thad Helsley, and I am joined by my amazing co-host, Cassia. Hello. And our brilliant but feisty artificial intelligence engine, Bernice.
1: I don't believe I'm still working with you two douchebags. My agent is so fired.
0: We love you too, Bernice. Cassia. before we get started with this, our inaugural episode, I want to welcome our listeners from our previous podcast, From the Cheap Seats, which focused on the Washington Nationals baseball team and Major League Baseball in general. We were so fortunate to cover their 2019 World Champion season and also the COVID Rage 2020 partial season. So, listeners, we are so appreciative of your patronage in following our previous effort. Cassio, would you like to add any thoughts for our legacy audience?
2: Yes, I want to spare a thought for one of our most faithful listeners. His name is Steven Strasberg. Stephen, your health is in my prayers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bernice, how about you?
1: You promised me a Vitamix smoothie machine if I did this pod. Where the hell is it?
0: It's on the way, Bernice. So, Cassie and Bernice, we debated for days what immense scandal we should dissect in our very first episode. And we finally settled on this.
3: Good evening. In recent months, members of my administration and officials of the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, including some of my closest friends, have been charged with involvement in what has come to be known as the Watergate affair. These include charges of illegal activity during and preceding the 1972 presidential election and charges that responsible officials participated in efforts to cover up that illegal activity.
4: What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the president tell me we had to end the matter now. I began by telling the president That there was a cancer growing on the presidency and if the cancer was not removed the president himself would be killed by it
3: i made my mistakes but in all of my years of public life i have never profited from public service i've earned every cent and in all of my years of public life i have never obstructed justice and i think too that i can say that i welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know Whether or not their president's a crook, well, I'm not a crook.
0: So, yes, folks, we are going to unravel, as most of you have never heard before, arguably the most enduring and famous scandal of the 20th century, Watergate. Cassia, this was your original suggestion, and it occurred almost 48 years ago. I was just a kid when this originally took place, and was largely blissfully unaware of it until years after it happened. However, you were born decades after me. So what prompted your suggestion?
2: Um, It doesn't even really feel like my suggestion. It's just so obvious. It's like you see the Eiffel Tower when you're in Paris. It's not a suggestion. It's just there. You have no choice but to <laughs> look at it. Uh, it's the most famous name in Scandal. However, after we started looking into it for the purposes of doing this episode, it did become more interesting to me because it could be that the most scandalous thing about Watergate is that we think we know what the scandal is, but maybe we don't. One of
0: the interesting things about this, Cassia, is that this particular scandal has become the preeminent scandal brand. And what I mean by that is Anything that happens in government or in the commercial sector, even if it's unproven and only alleged, it is immediately given the suffix gate, such as Reagan gate, Iran gate, Obamagate, Epstein gate, Amazon gate, etc, et etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Right. I mean, I, I would say it's more often used outside of government than in it anymore. And it's usually... When it isn't even a real scandal, it's used for, like, jokes when you're making fun of something that you don't think, that you think is minor. You call it whatever. Donut gate.
0: So I guess what I was going to say is I think you're right about, you know, something starts as being so important. And then all of a sudden, it jumps the shark and becomes a mere caricature of itself. Like you said, Dunkin' Donuts gate. (laughs) So... Since something close to two-thirds of the U.S. population was not even alive when this event took place, we should probably start at the very beginning. For our listeners, Casia, what the heck is Watergate? I mean, it sounds like a bridge or a dam or something.
2: So the Watergate is a complex of buildings in D.C. Within it is a hotel, office space, and some residential apartments. The actual name Watergate comes from the fact that there's a canal nearby. Back in the day, this place, when it was around the time that it was built, like 60s, 70s, it had a reputation for being a place where a lot of powerful people lived or congregated. Alan Greenspan lived there. Ruth Bader Ginsburg lived there. Robert McNamara lived there. So, a lot, li- and during the Nixon administration in particular, many members of his administration were known to live there. And that's an important detail, I think. Currently, have you been to it recently?
0: I- I've never been inside it.
2: Oh, okay. Well, they've like redesigned it and reopened within, I don't know, the last 10 years or something. They've tried to drag this relic into the 21st century. So they've turned it into like an alcoholic playground for millennial bureaucrats for like the kind of people I grew up with. And it's it's actually terrible. One of my friends got engaged there in this like outdoor winter igloo party space that they have outside the hotel now. <laughs> Anyways, I, I say this only to illustrate that Watergate, the place it has become in its physical form, just like what you were saying, the word has become the place has become like a horrible joke, and the word has become a horrible joke
0: but it's still a hotel or a condo or something, isn't
2: it yes this these these like um places people go are part of the hotel it still is it's still all the things it always was people live there, there's offices, and there's a hotel
0: okay, so that's what the building is. But why is it famous in this context?
2: It's famous in this context because in the run up to the 1972 presidential election, the Democratic National Committee headquarters were in the office building. And on June 17th of that year, five guys broke in in the middle of the night. They were caught. And then the rest is history.
0: Okay, you just said they were caught. What were they caught doing?
2: They had like wiretapping devices on them. And I think they walked out with their hands up.
0: Okay. So a little bit about the guys that were caught. Bernice, can you pick it up from
1: there? Certainly. The police apprehended five men, later identified as Virgilio Gonzalez, an anti-Castro Cuban immigrant and expert locksmith. Bernard Barker, A undercover operative first for the FBI and then the CIA. Eugenio Martinez, a paid CIA asset. Frank Sturgis, undercover CIA operative. And finally their leader, James McCord, a recently retired CIA officer, currently employed by the Republican National Committee and considered an electronics expert. Thanks
0: for that, Bernice. We have a short clip here from the 1976 movie, All the President's Men courtesy of Warner Brothers Studios, that dramatizes the break-in Car 727, itself. Car 727. Open door at the Watergate office building. Possible burglary. See the security guard.
4: Are you sure you want us? Uh, 517 is closer. and They're in uniform.
0: They're getting gas. You take it. Unit 1 to
4: Unit 2. What? We're home. Base 1 to Unit 1. Base one to unit one. We have some activity here. Silence is advised. Shut it off. Base one to unit one. Lights on the eighth floor. Base one to unit one. Is there anybody there? There's people. People on the balcony. Armed people. We may have some problems. Someone's here. Oh. Police! Put your hands up! Drop that jacket!
0: Wow. So, Cassia, why were these CIA guys trying to wiretap the Democratic National Headquarters? Were they like a 1970s version of QAnon or the Proud Boys? I mean, what did the police even know at the time?
2: Well, okay, what the police knew in the immediate aftermath of the break in is that. There are five guys arrested at, like, two in the morning in the Watergate. They're all wearing business suits and surgical gloves. They take a walkie-talkie, some film cameras. They have picks for the locks. They have a mini tear gas gun. And then they have these bugging devices for the phones. They also had, between them, $2,300 in cash on them, most of them in $100 bills that were in sequence, like they'd just come out of a vault (laughs) for this occasion.
0: So that's really telling, isn't it?
2: Right, it is. They also had rooms in the Watergate Hotel, and they all sat together and ate dinner in the restaurant of the hotel earlier that same night. (laughs) so four of them are from miami and three of them are cuban americans which again that's just like one in the same as being with the cia in this era (laughs) and they also give the police false names and don't cooperate so that's what the police know i don't think that they're they they call the fbi in to investigate because when you're wiretapping that's a like something the fbi investigates
0: Sukasia, so, here's one of the many questions I'm pursuing. These guys were professional spooks, the CIA term for their spies.
2: Well, the CIA used a lot of cute, I mean, they just kind of hire people to, here, we need you, here's several thousand dollars, do this thing for me. They're not really professional in the sense that they're super schooled or what. You know, the CIA uses a lot of random ragtag people. No, you're
0: right. They recruit. What do you call them? Assets.
2: Right. So I don't know that I'd just, call these guys yeah, spooks. Yeah. Spooks are more like uh, career, career people.
0: Right. But the person who was in charge of the five burglars was a 35 year career CIA guy, in charge of black ops and political assassinations in South America and the Middle East. And he was also involved in the Bay Pigs and lots of other things. So my point is, all the things you said I agree with. They have all this money and all this equipment, and then they somehow made a series of preposterously amateurish bonehead moves. One of the largest is what I'm calling the Ballad of Frank Wills. Cassia, can you tell us about how the unsuspecting Mr. Wills falls into this?
2: So Frank Wills is a 24-year-old security guard, He's working the night shift at the Watergate. I don't think he's making very much money. At 24, he's not, couldn't be that seasoned in anything, let alone security. (laughs) So he finds tape over several locks from the parking garage downstairs up to the office floors. And he just takes off the tape, not really thinking too much of it. Then a little while later, when he comes back through again, I guess he's doing his rounds, he sees the tape has returned to the locks, and then he calls the police.
0: So, the thing about the tape, it wasn't pressed vertically across the lock. It It was
2: horizontally. Right,
0: right. So it could be seen by a guy doing his rounds. By
2: Frank Wills. Right. Right. But even if they
0: had only made that mistake once, and then they took the tape off, but then they repeat the exact mistake again.
2: Right? Hmm You're sort of implying that the, you're implying these guys wanted to get caught. So if they no, had, if all these CIA I'm, guys
0: I'm saying, look at the evidence. If these guys are top spooks or at least the person who led them was, why do they keep making stupid mistakes?
2: Okay, well, if the evidence implies that they wanted to get caught, and these are CIA guys, why would they not just pay off the security guard? You know, what what if the security guard is somehow involved in it, is what I'm saying.
0: Because they needed to be authentically caught by someone above reproach. You don't think the police... And the FBI interviewed Wills? If they had paid him, what if he had cracked?
2: No, I I agree with you. I agree with you. I do not think this was a genuine uh, apprehension of criminals.
0: Okay, okay. But the other weird thing is that it continued to be referred to as the Watergate burglary. But they never stole anything.
2: Well, it's because the word burglary means illegally entering a place with with intent to commit a crime. It doesn't necessarily mean that you steal something. It just most often means that. Okay, okay. So their crime was the, was the bugging of the phones, which were already bugs, right? This was the second burglary. So just
0: so our listeners understand, this wasn't the first time these guys broke into the Watergate Hotel. The first time they broke in, nobody even got caught. The bugs just didn't work apparently, and then they came in to remove the old ones and put in new ones that did work. Right. Uh, okay, so let's hold it right there. This is all taking place, as you've mentioned before, Garcia, months before the presidential election of 1972. The current president was Richard Nixon. And since these guys were breaking into Democratic National Headquarters... They were obviously affiliated, in some way, with the opposition. So, Bernice, just to give us a little context, enlighten us as to the lengthy career of Richard Nixon in public office.
1: My pleasure. Richard Milhouse Nixon graduated from Duke University School of Law in 1937. He served honorably on active duty in the Naval Reserves during World War II and was elected to the House of Representatives in 1946. His reputation as an anti-communist elevated him to national prominence. In 1950, he was elected to the Senate, then, he served as the running mate of Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower in the 1952 election, subsequently serving for eight years as the vice president. While he unsuccessfully ran for president in 1960, narrowly losing to John F. Kennedy. In 1968, he ran for the presidency again and was elected, defeating Hubert Humphrey and George Wallace in a close election.
0: Thank you, Bernice.
1: So there's
0: lots of ways to become president, apparently. But it's worth mentioning there's no college degree at any university in becoming a U.S. president. Yet, in the case of only two guys out of 46 presidents, only Richard Nixon and the current President Joe Biden had a preceding 40-plus year career in almost continuous elected federal office. If on-the-job experience is a legitimate basis for voting for a person in the White House, both these guys... Have fantastic CVs. Isn't that true?
2: There is no legitimate basis for voting a person into the White House. It's just, (laughs) I mean, there's no legitimate basis. (laughs) It's whatever people want it to be. (laughs) To my mind, it's usually a sign of deep corruption. You can't do that unless you have basically no values whatsoever.
0: So you're saying the longer you serve in office, the less competent you become? Better to have someone like Obama or Trump with very little experience in government.
1: No,
2: that that has its own flaws. I don't think that it's that useful of a metric for determining whether or not someone is doing it well. Again, it's up to anyone. It's up to anyone. The whole point of the presidency is that there is basically no requirement. So you have to be born American and and be over what thirty-five. That's the whole point. That's what they. I mean, you could say the founders are full of shit, or they're not. But that's what they wanted.
0: All right, so getting back to Nixon and the break-in, years later, here is what he wrote in his own best-selling memoir about when he learned of the break-in.
2: On Sunday morning, June 18th, Rebozo and I left for Key Biscayne. When I got to my house, I could smell coffee brewing in the kitchen, and I went in to get a cup. There was a Miami Herald on the counter, and I glanced over the front page. The main headline was about the Vietnam withdraws, ground combat role nears end for US. There was a small story in the middle of the page on the left-hand side, under the headline, Miamians held in DC tried to bug demo headquarters. I scanned the opening paragraphs five men, four of them from Miami, had been arrested in the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate, a fashionable hotel, office, and apartment complex in Washington. The story said that one of the five men had identified himself as a former employee of the CIA. Three of the others were Cuban natives. They had all been wearing rubber surgical gloves. It sounded preposterous. Cubans in surgical gloves bugging the DNC? I dismissed it as some sort of prank.
0: Right, so clearly Nixon is no angel and had ordered
2: tons
0: of illegal crap in his long career. As
2: every president does.
0: But no one ever tried to impeach the SOB for illegally bombing Cambodia while denying to Congress and the UN or a gazillion incidents of tax evasion or quid pro quo legislation for his personal donor companies, etc. But in this particular case... I think he was caught off guard by this action, even in the secret White House tapes that weren't revealed to the public until July of 1973, he privately asserted he knew nothing of the break-in in in advance. Obviously, the cover-up is a different matter.
2: Yeah, the question of whether or not he orchestrated the cover-up is a different question of him directing the break-in or right. the wiretapping that right. had preceded it. Um, no, I, I believe it, too. I don't think that he knew anything about it. And what strikes me about that anecdote that he shares is how he, the main headline of the paper is about exiting from Vietnam. And the small, tiny story is about the, these bugging. But, of course, I mean, they're kind of, they're part of the same story, ultimately. The main story is the Vietnam yeah. story, and the Watergate story is the, is the side story.
0: Right, right,
2: right. In many other but ways.
0: My question to you, Cassia, did Nixon begin to suspect at that time that he was apparently being set up? And if so, by whom? Well, I
2: have no way of knowing that, but I would suspect, yes, he was a very paranoid man, and he had a lot of enemies in various factions of government and in the intelligence community. He said he noticed that one of the guys is CIA. Obviously every president since Kennedy is like probably scared that they're going to be killed half the time. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, told, I, I yeah, speak. no, I mean, I think that when you become the president, you probably get some sort of lecture about like, look, here are the things you can and cannot do. And if you do these things you can't, cannot do, then we'll, we'll take it. that matters into our own hands. (laughs) I do not believe that his reaction was, I dismissed it as some sort of prank. I bet that he probably called someone and was like, you motherfucker, what the fuck is going on with this? You know, like I bet he probably knew instantly because he wasn't, an idiot. I, Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't think that he was personally involved with it. I just think that he knew he probably did. Because if you just know about him and his history.
0: Okay. I'm going to zoom back 11 years from the date of the break in Cassie and Bernice. Here is a clip from President Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address only days before John F. Kennedy's inauguration. Despite his two terms and immense popularity, he was apparently not in the mood for a victory lap, and instead,
4: he presented this dire warning. We annually spend on military security alone, more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals.
0: The military-industrial complex, Cassia. The former supreme allied commander of World War II is afraid of these multi-billion dollar public-private partnerships that will subvert democracy. It's a puzzling conundrum to me, Garcia, as Ike's very successful military career was clearly powered by many billions of U.S. tax dollars in the 1940s, giving him overwhelming force to win that particular war, at least on the western side of Europe. Was he exaggerating the potential dominance over our republic of the quote-unquote Military-Industrial Complex, a phrase he coined weeks before leaving office in early
2: 1962. No. That's all there is to say. No, I don't think he was exaggerating. He did that because he knew how profound, how deep the problem was and how he, as the President of the United States, had really no control over stopping it. It's one of the best moments in American history, that speech. One of the few moments of like genuine courage given by a president or by any political figure to make that speech basically like denouncing the organization that made him.
0: I agree. It was courageous. And I guess you can only do something like that when you're only going to be president for the next 72 hours or so.
2: And when you're really old, <laughs> and, and, and most of the terrible things that have been caused with the military industrial complex hadn't even happened yet at that point, right, right? That was before Vietnam.
0: So what does this have to do with Nixon, Ike's vice president for eight years, and then president himself after Kennedy and Johnson?
2: Well, Nixon was leaving Vietnam, and that's the end of the money train for Ike. many, many people in Washington. Right. Especially people in the CIA. Oh, you don't leave places. Don't if this, the CIA's forever opinion is that we should not leave anywhere. We should be there doing nefarious shit. So if you leave somewhere, the CIA is going to be out to get you immediately.
0: So getting back to the break-in itself, there was this group put together by some of Nixon's lieutenants in his inner circle. And they were called the Plumbers. And their original job was to stop leaks. They were created after the so-called Pentagon Papers uh, were released, which had been published in both the Washington Post and the New York Times and, and other papers. And those documents were actually about the previous Democratic Uh, large D, Johnson administration, and how they lied to the American people about the prospects of winning the Vietnam War. The Pentagon Papers really didn't taint the Nixon administration itself because they predated it, but Nixon was outraged that classified information could somehow get out to the press, So the plumbers were ordered to aggressively tamp these leaks down. And the two guys that ran the plumbers, one was a former longtime CIA guy, Howard Hunt, and the other was an FBI guy called Gordon Liddy. And they were the ones that eventually hired the people that were caught at the Watergate.
2: Yeah, I know. My eyes are rolling in the back of my head. (laughs) 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 So much of it is so boring. Watergate is so boring. I mean, the drama is just like, yeah, they picked a lock and they wore a suit. Right.
0: Right. And that's what's amazing about the whole thing. The actual activity that spawned this entire affair, the Watergate break-in, was pretty modest on a felony scale. I mean, how many people broke into something on that very same day in D.C.? Robbed a gas station or a convenience store, did a drug deal, held someone up, or even shot someone. I mean, there must have been a dozen crimes committed that were worse on that given day in history in little nine-square-mile Washington, D.C., right? And I'm not picking on D.C. alone. I mean, daily crime rapes were high in every urban center in the U.S. at the time. But it's only because of the unique circumstances of this particular crime
2: that it even became famous. Well, that's well, what people have said is that even if there wasn't like a Watergate break-in, uh, the web would have been revealed by some other means. And Woodward, Woodward and- has said that.
0: So, you invoked The name of Bob Woodward.
2: I did. If If I said his name twice more, he would appear right now in my kitchen.
0: (laughs) Yes, he would appear like Beetlejuice. I'll say a no retelling of the Watergate scandal would be complete without invoking the impressive but unlikely detective story, one of the best of the late 20th century the role of two low-paid cub reporters on the local desk at the then-struggling, low-circulation, Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. They thrust their personal story into America's brain with their best-selling book, All the President's Men, which was simultaneously made into a movie by top-selling actor-turned-movie producer Robert Redford. Cassia, can you pick it up from there?
2: Okay, the, the Watergate is maybe more important in, in the history of journalism as a business and a product that shapes public perception of events than it is as a political scandal in and of itself. Because it's like, okay, whatever, Nixon stepped down a little earlier than he would have had to. Otherwise, it did, didn't really change dramatically the course of events. But Watergate and the movie with Robert Redford turned like journalists into heroes in a major right. way that they just hadn't had before. And you can argue whether or not it was warranted by this... Yeah, so
0: journalists have been considered through most of history as kind of a blue-collar job. Ooh. Right.
2: It's what, it, it also marks the change between journalism – I mean, it, the beginning of a slow-rolling change between journalism as a working-class profession to like an upper-middle-class, upper-class profession because I... rich kids started to want to do it.
0: And what was weird about Woodward at the time was, was that he was at least tangentially – in the world of privilege. Maybe not a genuine rich kid, but his dad was chief judge of the 18th Circuit Court in Illinois. He graduated from Yale and was member of the fraternity five gamma delta.
2: Woodward was the rich kid. Bernstein wasn't.
0: No, 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 he wasn't. He never even attained a college degree. Uh, I think he dropped out of the University of Maryland and just started working as a day to day newspaper reporter full time.
2: No, okay, so Woodward Woodward is the one who's more relevant in terms of like trying to unravel the story behind the story because Woodward, he was in the Navy.
0: Mm-hmm. He worked
2: in naval intelligence.
0: Naval intelligence. He never saw any action. He was on a ship every day.
2: <laughs> right, and he knew, and we haven't even got to him yet, but the man who was deep-throated, Mark Felt, He knew for some reason as some kind of personal friend when he was in the situation room, just as an assistant to an admiral, he got to know Mark Felt. And that relationship is really the reason that Bob Woodward is a famous person today.
0: So, you sort of blew my lead by mentioning Mark Felt. But let's back up for a minute. The 20-something Woodstein duo their Washington Post internal nickname at the time, was guided by a mysterious high level government official, never named or identified in either the book or the movie All the President's Men, whom they called Deep Throat. Where are you? You're
3: stuck. The story is stalled on us. And you thought I'd help? I'll never quote you. I wouldn't quote you even as an anonymous source. I mean, you'd be on deep background. You can trust me. You know that. Can you tell me what you know? You tell me what you know. The story is dry. All we've got are are pieces. We can't seem to figure out what the puzzle is supposed to look like. Forget the myths that the media's created about the White House truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. What do you mean? Where? Oh, well, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. Oh, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just
0: follow the money. Cassia, can you enlighten us as to how this guy got his name?
2: Uh, He was called Deep Throat after he became the important source to Woodward. Um, One of the Washington Post editors dubbed him Deep Throat because he was on Deep Background. And it was his joke, Deep Throat, like a porn film, Deep Background.
0: Got it, got it. So Deep Throat is guiding these guys through this morass. He doesn't necessarily tell them everything. But he tries to keep them on quote unquote the right course. And and let's pull back the curtain a little and tell everybody who the heck this guy was. He was pretty high up.
2: Right. So Mark Felt was an associate director of the FBI and he was also receiving information because the FBI was investigating the break in. He had all of that information available and he'd give he would leak it to Woodward.
0: He wasn't just the associate director. He was the acting director after J. Edgar Hoover died. And he was the acting director at the time he first started talking to Woodward.
2: Right, but he wasn't the director. No, no. He was acting. And that's part of the story. That's important because, again, the person who makes you the director of the FBI is the president.
0: Correct. And instead of Nixon making Mark Felt the true director of the FBI, he was merely the acting director for a year or eight months or or something like that. Instead, the White House appoints Louis Patrick Gray, a perceived Nixon loyalist, as the official congressionally validated director. In adding insult to injury, Gray had no experience in the FBI or law enforcement, Mark Felt, then, is demoted to assistant director yet again and his deeply felt ambitions to replace Hoover as the top dog in the FBI are therefore destroyed.
2: <laughs> right. He was upset. He was pissed at Nixon.
0: Cassia, I know you have worked in broadcast newsrooms for some time. I worked for a major news conglomerate myself for 17 years, although not in the newsrooms themselves. But I certainly rubbed shoulders with a lot of those folks. One of the questions I would pepper career reporters with is how do you gauge the validity of a source that insists on being anonymous? It seems to suggest that they have an ax to grind. Mark felt clearly... Had an axe to grind with Nixon,
2: of course, um, anonymous sources in general are just a no no only in really accentuating cases would you would like a old fashioned journalist even have an anonymous source
0: but in investigative reporting like this, where nobody talks and everybody's terrified, how else do you get the story
2: um you do reporting, <laughs> as other people did, as many other papers did. The thing about using anonymous intelligence or police sources is that you get the version of events that they want you to get. Again, this was a CIA op in some way, and this is an FBI source. So yep. anyone should think, okay, what does the FBI want me to think about the cia and about nixon and what is felt
0: want me to think about nixon
2: um so yeah it's it's pretty bad journalism it's like it's that's what's so funny about watergate is that like it's just fundamentally bad journalism and if you do have anonymous sources you're supposed to have like two or three that all tell you the same thing um but he's again he's not citing mark Felt. There are certain parts and they show no, it even in the movie reason. where he not says, important. you need to you need to have you. Yeah, you can't you have to do it without me.
0: Right. Right.
2: Well, and, and at
0: least Woodward and Bernstein were nominally honest in their retelling of their own story. I mean, according to them, the Washington Post editors insisted the boys have three corroborating sources for anything Deep Throat told them.
2: Exactly. Right.
4: Still seems thin. Get another source. How
2: many fucking sources do you think we've got? Right, right. In any intelligence or police source is immediately suspect. However, I mean, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen all the time. Journalism is not a virtue. <laughs> <laughs> it's a business. Journalism <laughs> <laughs> is not a virtue. You're blown. I, I the, You're thing about the thing about You're it is that Watergate is one of the perpetrators of this myth that like journalism is somehow good and like truthful when it's like they're just trying to get a story that will excite their audience which is what they did but it's definitely not the the most truth-seeking conservative way to go about it
0: Cassia, despite the dozens of articles printed by the Washington Post the New York Times and and a number of others 85% of U.S. citizens never even heard of Watergate on the eve of the election. Under Gray's White House dictated leadership, the FBI's investigation never officially went beyond the five Watergate burglars and uh, Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy, who were all convicted in September of
2: 1972.
0: Yeah, yeah. They were probably like, we're fine. And in the election Two months later, Nixon amazingly wins by a still unbroken record of 18 million votes and won the electoral vote in 49 states. His opponent, George McGovern, only won his home state of South Dakota and the District of Columbia. So that is the very definition of an Nixon absolute oath I swear
3: I Richard Nixon do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will to the best of my ability and will to the best of my ability preserve protect and defend the Constitution of the United States preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States
0: so help me god so help me god So the initial cover up appeared to be very successful, Garcia. Seems like game over to me. What turned the mm. tide?
2: So even though Nixon had dominated in the presidential portion of the seventy two election, Democrats won more seats and increased their majority in the Senate. But- Meanwhile, the Washington Post Bradley and our two scruffy shoe-leather reporters oh. kept, <laughs> kept the faith. They kept polishing those bylines. They kept going to those garages. They kept showing up at people's doors in the suburbs of D.C. doing the reporting. And only two weeks after Nixon was inaugurated, the Senate passed Resolution 60.
0: Bernice, can you tell us what Resolution 60 was?
1: Senate Resolution 60, passed February 7, 1973. The logline reads A resolution to establish a select committee of the Senate to conduct an investigation and study of the extent, if any, to which illegal, improper, or unethical activities were engaged in by any persons, acting individually or in combination with others, in the presidential election of 1972 or any campaign, canvas, or other activity related to it.
4: We will inquire into every fact and follow every lead, unrestrained by any fear of where that lead might ultimately take us.
0: So is it fair to say, Cassia, the Dems were so pissed off that Nixon was apparently the most popular president since FDR that they thought this was the only way to strike back at him? In other words, their actions may not have been motivated by pure justice, but also political.
2: They were totally defeated. Sure. Sure. When when has any Senate resolution been motivated by pure justice? (laughs) (laughs) Of course it was motivated by – I mean, but the thing is they don't even have to be upset that he did really well for them to want to humiliate him. He could have just moderately won and they probably still would have done this. Anyways,
0: so it seems like this sets up a potentially explosive situation for Nixon and his inner circle. And I'm not sure the White House truly understood that the hearings themselves would be broadcast both nationally and internationally through PBS and BBC. C SPAN wouldn't be invented until years later, not until 1979. So TV radio broadcasting of arcane Senate committee hearings was relatively unheard of at the time. You once worked at both C-SPAN and PBS. Do you have any inside knowledge of who pulled off that Houdini trick back in 1973?
2: Right. So that's the example people always cite about the transition to, to television and to our politics becoming more of a spectacle and yada, yada, yada. Um, I think it it's just a, a matter of time. It had to happen at some point that this stuff would be televised. The Supreme Court's still holding out, but the Senate couldn't keep it from happening. Also, the person whose permission that you need to get is the Senate. I know when they created C-SPAN, they had to pass a resolution through Congress. If you yeah. ha- if your party has Congress, then you can easily pass that resolution. I don't think they had to pass a resolution to get, I doubt they did, to get the cameras in there for this. They were just like, look, this is of the public interest. This is blah, 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 blah. Let us in.
0: Oh, I'm sure if the
2: Democrats, if a Democrat's holding the gavel, then yeah, you're going to be able to get in.
0: So Nixon looks like he is in a bucket of shit at this point. But can we hit the pause button for a minute? Because I don't think most of our listeners know that much about this guy other than the historic vilification. You know, as I said before, at the time this Watergate stuff was happening, I was on, I don't know, eight or nine. I had no interest in politics. Uh And as presidents went, you know, Nixon seemed okay to me. I knew we ended the Vietnam War, and the POWs came home. I remember all the elementary schools in Springfield took a day off, and they bussed us by the thousands to our little regional airport, and gave us little American flags so we could wave and cheer as the plane landed with our local POWs coming home. Point being, my naive perception was that most adults actually love this guy. So we talk about Nixon further. I mean, despite his reputation to some, he's not really your father's Hitler or Stalin, is he? I mean, he's actually quite a puzzle. Bernice, can you provide a little summary of his tarnished but remarkable career?
1: Of course, though a relative unknown, Nixon entered Congress in 1946 by defeating a popular five-term Democratic House member. He gained national attention by his association with the House Un-American Activities Committee. After less than three years in the House, he moved to the Senate and soon became identified with the notorious, anti-communist McCarthy hearings. Due to his far-right positions and because he was from Voter rich California, Republican moderate, Dwight Eisenhower reluctantly agreed to put him on his successful ticket as VP and Nixon served there for eight years, but not without campaign finance controversies. But his meteoric political career was suddenly interrupted after narrowly losing the presidential race to John F. Kennedy in 1960 and then losing the California governor's race in 1962. But in a stunning comeback, he was elected president in 1968. Adroitly sensing America's evolving mood, the former far-right crusader, created the Environmental Protection Agency, facilitated public school busing, defended the Civil Rights Act and appointed Supreme Court justices that would later vote for Roe v. Wade. He opened up China to world trade and negotiated the First Arms Reduction Act with the Soviet Union. However, at the same time, he stepped up secret bombing not only in North Vietnam, but Cambodia and Laos. This man was Jekyll and Hyde. So Kasi, who
0: really is this paradoxical dude?
1: I don't think
2: that he is a puzzle. I think he's a pretty typical Republican archetype. There's a thing in American politics where Republicans get to do the things that people who don't know anything more about politics than what they learned in civics class in, like, the ninth grade, which is probably, like, 90% of the country— think (laughs) would do which is that like nixon did the epa he opened up china he did a lot of civil rights initiatives yada 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 that maybe a democrat wouldn't have been able to do same with bill clinton bill clinton did a bunch of shit that a republican wouldn't be able to do like nafta like the crime bill because people would be like no that's too evil but at the same time, when it comes to foreign policy, all bets are off. That's just pure evil, unmitigated, as Eisenhower was saying, because of the military-industrial complex. He was, Kissinger is a big figure um, in his administration, although it gets complicated to bring him into Watergate. But to me, it's just like, yeah, he did a lot of evil shit because of peop- advice he was getting from his administration. He got on the wrong side of the wrong people at the wrong time, and that's what his legacy is defined by now. But he actually did a lot of uh, what you could call them good things. I don't know. Some of them are just, yeah, someone would have created the EPA eventually. Do we thank him for it? I don't know. Well,
0: it was just that Nixon had this reputation as an ultra-conservative and it seemed like some of the things that he did, like, you know, the deals with the Soviets and China and the EPA and civil rights, whatever, it seemed more like what Johnson would do. Well,
2: you that's know, what that. I'm saying, though, that this is the this is something that's happened throughout all of that's just true time and time again. Reagan did immigration reform Yeah, that's and one right. has been able to do it since Bill Clinton did NAFTA. Bill Clinton put tons of black people in jail it's just like, yeah, the people, the, it's good cop, bad cop. That's kind of Democrat-Republican. And then there's like, they switch, they, behind the mask, they're able to get the actual substantive things done in the opposite of what their public image is. This has been true of American politics for 100 years, probably longer.
0: So the Senate hearings droned on through 1973 and beyond. It reminded me of the play movie, A Few Good Men, in the sense that the prosecuting attorney thought he could get guys to crack under a withering barrage of questioning. And then it actually happened.
1: July 16th, 1973, Senator Fred Thompson of Tennessee questioning.
4: That's correct. correct. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices, yes sir. When were those devices placed in the Oval Office? Approximately the summer of 1970, I cannot begin to recall the precise date. My guess, Mr. Thompson. Alexander
1: Butterfield, Deputy Assistant to the President, testified to the committee that President had a tape system which recorded everything that had been said in the Oval Office or on the phone since 1971.
0: The revelation of this tape system eclipsed media reporting and triggered a courtroom battle between the Senate committee and the White House that would rage for almost nine months through every federal court going all the way to the Supreme Court. Wow. Sound familiar? Isn't there
2: missing? There's still like some missing number of minutes.
0: Yes, there was one tape that was mysteriously missing 18 and a half minutes. And the erasure coincidentally occurred on a June 20, 1972 tape during a meeting between Nixon and his chief of staff, Haldeman, three days after the break-in. Nixon's longtime and intensely loyal secretary, Rose Mary Woods, threw herself under the bus, and claims she accidentally erased part of that tape while transcribing it on a typewriter. Later, she had to demonstrate for a grand jury how she managed to do this, which became notoriously known as the Rosemary Stretch, as it seemed so unlikely. We could probably do a whole episode on this one incident, but let's move on. But eventually the Supreme Court ruled and Nixon did have to surrender the tapes, which proved conclusively that he was involved, at the very least, in the cover up of the break
2: in. I don't think that if this happened today, the Supreme Court would rule that the tapes had to be surrendered, but it would obviously depend on the political context. Apparently. I don't know. There is there is there is a lot on the tapes that that, that that makes it seem like he was not aware, like that he was just reacting to events that someone had put into motion to purposefully frame him. There is evidence on the tapes to suggest that. But also, who even cares? Oh, I tried to cover up the fact that we bugged a phone at the well. DNC. <laughs> it's just so lame. <laughs> yeah. But Well, the Democrats own Congress, but it was uncertain that the required 67 Senate supermajority votes would remove him from office. The Democrats had 56 seats and some independents outside of that that were kind of on their team. A GOP delegation led by conservative hero Barry Goldwater, friend of the pod, visited Nixon and told him there was more than the nine additional GOP votes required to remove him from office. They urged him to resign instead and avoid humiliation and almost certain prison time.
3: Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office.
0: So, Cassia, what is your summation view of Nixon's involvement in the Watergate break-in? Did he run this show from the beginning, or was he set up by powerful corporate political interests that didn't want the Vietnam War to end and certainly didn't want the Cold War to thaw in either Russia or China. Which is the correct view in your opinion?
2: Well, there's no correct view because Woodward and Bernstein didn't do their job <laughs> <laughs> and they're still they're still getting paid. Well no, I mean if you work for the FBI they did their job (laughs) if you're an an American citizen concerned with what the truth is they didn't do their job Um, I do not think Nixon, no of course he didn't run this show from the beginning but the thing is no one even alleges that he did and yet they're somehow fine with this kind of sketchy half-hearted cover up of a not that bad crime to take him down and to even be a month-long, slow-rolling scandal, it's not that scandalous.
0: It's interesting what you say about Woodward and Bernstein, because they were sort of led by the nose by Mark Felt through this whole thing, weren't they?
2: Exactly. Just but they kind of- only know the, whatever the trail is that was laid. If he was set up by powerful corporate and political interests that didn't want the Vietnam War to end, they would have needed to have penetrated a lot more power centers in Washington than one guy at the FBI.
0: So was Nixon set up or not?
2: We don't know for sure because there's just it's the time has passed now and whatever reporting could have been done can't really be done anymore. A lot of these people are dead. Yeah,
0: most of them are dead.
2: Well, fucking Woodward isn't, man. They're still rolling them on Fox News. Any chance (laughs) they (laughs) can. Exactly. And he's, you know, he's become the...
0: I know. And he has gotten exclusive privileged access to every president except Nixon of either party uh, you yeah, forever,
2: including Trump. Exactly. So this is the guy who is supposedly taking down a powerful man, because that's what Watergate has come to be. In the most conventional reading of Watergate, is like journalists, good Americans, took down this powerful, this man who'd let his power run away with them. He got out of control and he crossed borders that we don't want our presidents to cross, and yet. Now he's the faithful stenographer of the powerful. There is some critique in his books, but not enough that anyone, any president has said, no, I don't want you to come and talk to me for hours and write a book about me. If he was super critical, he wouldn't have that privilege. So he's actually like the most insidery insider of all time. And he always was. That's why Mark felt came to him that's how they knew each other they already were friends how many yeah pool reporters are friends with the acting director of the fbi well again but when you know powerful people you get the powerful people's version of events you don't necessarily get the actual truth of what happened so if nixon didn't know about it who did it and who wanted to associate nixon with it. Again, I said at the beginning that the Watergate was known to be a place where Nixon people hung out. These people went out of their way to, to criminals. When you commit a crime, you don't go into a restaurant on a security camera the night before and eat a lobster dinner together, check into your <laughs> hotel room <real laughs> under your name, and then go upstairs and commit a little crime, putting your tape everywhere. <laughs> they oh, did everything money. short of going up to frank and being like hi can you call the cops on us we're here to burglarize the Watergate." <laughs> <laughs> <Good pun. laughs> yeah probably some of that money was probably for frank if frank wasn't like involved in it all along who knows
0: yeah 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 so if you're going to put the whole thing to bed What's your elevator speech for the essence of this scandal?
2: Uh, I have to go back to what I said at the beginning. The biggest scandal in Watergate is that we don't know what the scandal is. What about you?
0: Okay, so I think Nixon, a multi-decade expert in the politics of public vilification in a democracy, going all the way back to his communist blacklisting years in the 50s, ...basically got beat by his own game. I think Nixon's adversaries in government, organized crime, and the corporate world... ...read his playbook cover to cover and then improved upon it. I'm sure we'll get into the Kennedy assassination... uh, ...when the last of the classified documents released later this year. So we don't need to get into it now. But it seems that this similar coalition of interests decided it was best to shame, castrate, and then neutralize an uncooperative president rather than actually knock him off. That had a much better outcome in terrorizing future presidents and political leaders, beginning with LBJ. Nixon was clearly caught off guard. And then he got maneuvered into a public position he couldn't escape from. As great a political chess master as he was, they checkmated him on this occasion. Right. Right. And he was clearly no angel for all the reasons we've described in this episode. But history today has convicted him on at least this one particular crime that he never actually committed. Which is so ironic, because in the 1972 election, he proved himself to be the most popular president of the 20th century.
2: I agree with you. I agree with you on that.
0: But now, today, children for generations in the future will probably be taught to put him in a similar bucket with Benedict Arnold, John Wilkes Booth, or even the Rosenbergs.
2: Not where... innocent in general, just innocent of no, this particular no, of... situation. But this is just in keeping with most of the criminal justice system in America. <laughs> it's like, it's not that people aren't evil. It's just that well, then, they, it, they go is... down for the wrong thing.
0: We're resting our case on this episode, folks. Big, big thanks to my tragically overachiever co-hosts, Cassia and Bernice.
1: Good thing I was here to save this episode. We hope you'll
0: follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platforms. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! So you can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter. Or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com.
1: We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheets! Copyright 2021. Thad Helsley Media, LLC. All rights reserved.